Uh, we are going to be in Matthew 21. We're going to be talking about angry Jesus today. Yeah. We're going to talk about when Jesus gets mad. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 21, starting at verse 12, if you want to turn there. I'll be preaching through the ESV today. And so uh, if you don't have that version, you can follow along right up here. But let's, uh, let's just get into it. Matthew 21, verse 12 says this, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed him. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. And have you read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared your praise. In leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. This is God's word. Uh, I, I think it would be great if we could just put out our, our hands in a posture wanting to receive from the Lord this morning. And let's pray. Lord, we, we want to receive from you. We realize that you have um, formed eternity in heaven to be a place where we will be learning about you, your character, your love for us, your desires for us. And this morning, when we learn about you, your character, your desires, and how we fit into this wonderful narrative you have created, may we get a glimpse of eternity this morning, a glimpse of heaven, which is going to be filled with worship of you, unity with you, speaking to you, and learning from you. We pray these things, Lord, in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. So, angry Jesus, right? Jesus just got done with the triumphal entry, right? He's entered into Jerusalem. And everyone is loving it, too. Everyone's loving it. They want Jesus to come and be their triumphant king and establish the kingdom there on earth. They, they lay down palm fronds. They lay down their coats and they say, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna. And they're, and they're loving it. And then Jesus goes straight into the temple and he sees people uh, buying and, and, uh, and, and selling different forms of sacrifice. Money changers who are uh, making a special temple currency. That, so you can't just go and buy a sacrifice, but you have to first get your money at a huge exchange rate. And then you can buy a sacrifice that's deemed worthy by the temple uh, leaders. And Jesus is walking into this and he's seeing all of this greed and, and, and all of these things happening in the temple of God where there's supposed to be worship. And he gets angry. And we don't see angry Jesus very often, do we? Right? We don't see angry Jesus very often. There are a few areas in scripture where we get a glimpse of Jesus being angry. But usually that manifests itself in, in kind of sarcastic comments to the religious leaders or calling Peter Satan. Right? That's usually how it manifests itself. But in here, we see Jesus getting physical. He is actually physically flipping these tables. He's angry. And we usually think of God the Father, like Yahweh in the Old Testament, right? We usually think of him as the angry one, don't we? Right? And subconsciously, I think, I don't know, 
maybe you have a way better understanding than I do, but subconsciously sometimes I find myself thinking that the God of the Old Testament's angry, he got some therapy, and then he sent Jesus as like, hey, I'm sorry, right? And that's not true, obviously, but, but I think subconsciously we can feel like, you know, Jesus is, is very um, flowery, hippie Jesus, right? Doesn't get angry at anything and is chill all the time. It's that surfer Jesus we Southern Californians love. But he's the same God, and this is the same story, right? The same God, the same story, and it would do us well to pay attention to what makes God angry. It would do us really well to pay attention to what angers God. Because, like many of us, what makes God angry comes from a very deep place of what he loves most dear. The same is true for us. What makes us angry usually comes from this place of trying to protect something that we love, doesn't it? I'll give you an example. I love food. Love it. It's not just like a necessity thing for me. It is, I, it's a hobby. <laughs> I love food. Preach, yes. Some of you will, will leave today like knowing nothing but like, I got to go get food, right? I love food. Therefore, what stirs me up to wrath and righteous indignation is when food is removed from me, Right? When it is out of the equation, when I have to listen to a preacher for 40 minutes when my stomach is growling, right? When, when someone removes or tampers with or hinders my access to food, I will get angry, right? A more, a more serious example, perhaps, is, is when my love for my wife will inspire any anger I have towards someone who mistreats her, right? And so what we love the most can inspire in us a form of anger, And it means to access or protect. And if we look at the story of God in the Bible, it becomes very clear to us what he loves most. And I'm not just talking in certain passages of Scripture. I'm talking about the entire narrative of Scripture. In the entire story of God, it becomes very clear that he loves, loves to dwell with his people, be worshipped, and to bless his people. That is what God loves. It is what he is all about. It started in the Garden of Eden, right? It started in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, he says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. So God created this garden where Adam and Eve would walk with him in the cool of the day in unity. He would bless them. He would provide for them every need that they had. And we know kind of how that story ends up, right? Right. Kind of know that quickly it doesn't take us long. It takes us like three chapters to mess everything up, right? And so we we, we see, right, that, that there's this rift that we created, right? Sin creates this this sort of rift. And what Adam and Eve did in the garden is they essentially said, hey, we are our own gods. We decide our own fate. We are going to eat of this tree of knowledge and good and evil. We are going to become like God, right? And so they, they sin in this manner. And there's this separation. But God's desire for unity and community and walking with his people doesn't change just because they sin. It doesn't change just because they fall. So God establishes this grand plan to 
maintain and retain and bring back the unity that was once in the garden. We see this at first when he chooses Abraham and his sons. He chooses Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He decides to create this lineage in which he's going to bless people. It says in Genesis 17, he says this, And I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you in their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. In Genesis 22, he says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so God chooses this people group saying, hey, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be with you. And through you, all of the nations are going to be blessed. Through you, everyone's going to come to me. Through your seed. And we know now that that seed is Jesus. All the nations shall be blessed. So God has this divine plan to bring all the nations into intimacy and unity with him. And it starts with him establishing that people group, right? He establishes the nation of Israel. A nation that will grow in this tension between flesh and spirit. Always struggling to gain that unity with God. But God still pushing forward, wanting to be with them. And creating avenues to be with them. He created this nation of Israel. He established it. He established laws and codes in order for them to thrive in a really hostile time. A nation whose history would be centered around a holy God pursuing them at all costs. We see that all throughout Scripture. A God that would send plagues, part seas, shatter the earth, demolish walls, all just to get to them and bless them. That's God's desire. And he did this also in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle. He's created these ways, these dwelling places, so that he could be amongst his people. That he's not this far-off, distant God who decides to maintain, uh, to, to, to have himself be a secret to people. He wants to be with and amongst these people, but he's so holy that he needs these areas in which he can exist. And eventually, when the nation of Israel became more established, what did it become? It became the temple, right? They established the temple, a place where people would actually travel thousands of miles to commune with God, thousands of miles to make sacrifice and to pray and to worship and to be with this God who has decided to dwell here. And sacrifices would be made and offered up to God. And these sacrifices, as we know, are the innocent uh, blood of animals that were shed, right? And I know that's gross, right? Like that's, that's, it, it, it's gross. It's nasty. The, the temple was a bloody place. Like there, there was this river that flowed out of the temple, right, that was just covered in blood. And it was all to express the severity that uh, man's sin has. The severity of sin. And that blood is required to atone for it. And it is all to ultimately point towards the greater sacrifice Jesus would make just a week later. All of the sacrifices of the temple meant to point us towards this ultimate sacrifice Jesus would be making. And so the temple is where the people's sins would be brought before God. And like I said, it's not just the Jews that would come here. It was people of all different races and ethnicities. All different nations would flock to the temple. And they would implore God to forgive them. To 
bless them and embolden them. It's this place where people's sins were brought to the altar of God and repentance was made. Not just a practice for Israel. In fact, in fact, actually what was established in the temple, it was established in courtyards. Like there's there different courtyards. The first courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, right? And it was a huge courtyard about the size of like three football fields, right? Just huge. And, and, and so this, this, this place was specifically designed in the temple so that people of all nations, not just the Hebrew people, could come, commune with God, make sacrifice. And this is insane. It's crazy because that's what God wanted all along. Do you remember? When he spoke to Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you. He said that through your seed and my covenant that I'm going to establish with you, I'm going to bless all the nations, right? And so it's super cool that in this courtyard, there was a place for all the nations to come. It was this place for the Gentiles who were ultimately not a part of God's people to come in and enter into the presence of God. Those who didn't grow up with this knowledge of God can go and say, do you know what? I heard that the God of the universe dwells in Israel. And I'm going to travel thousands of miles to go and see him. And I heard that there's actually a special part of the temple where I, as an outcast and an outsider, can come and worship him. But guess what section of the temple was being used to make money? It's the outer courtyard. Courtyard for the Gentiles. So not only are the Gentiles now not able to come and worship, but the poor were not able to come and worship God either. They weren't able to come because they would come with their pigeon, right? Because the law... uh, It makes specific reservations for the poor to be able to afford sacrifices. And so they'd bring their sacrifice. The temple leaders would say, it's not clean enough. You're going to have to buy one of ours. So the poor would just have to walk out, unable to worship him. The Gentiles that would travel thousands and thousands of miles to meet this God, this creator of the world, And they can't carry a sheep or a goat thousands of miles, so they go there to exchange it. And they finally pay money for their sacrifice and be like, where do I sacrifice? Well, we're kind of using this area right now. And so, Jesus gets angry. Wouldn't you? The temple was where God decided to make himself present. And greed was keeping the poor and needy from accessing him. They were making, they, they, they were making them buy their own atonement. They're making them purchase their own atonement, which was ultimately only something Jesus Christ can do with his blood. And so, of course, this is going to make Jesus mad. Like flipping tables mad. He, he enters in and he starts flipping the tables over because the heart of God is to be with his children. And they, there were these physical barriers keeping that from happening. When we get angry, when we get angry, it's usually because we are trying to protect something. 
this, this can happen in everyday life, right? You know, you're, you can get angry at anyone who poses a threat to your, your family or your children. Um, but it can also be sinful stuff. Like, you know, we get mad at things that challenge our comfortability or our own worldview. We get mad at people that try and poke and prod at what we've, we've created to be a safe space for ourselves. And so we, we get mad when, when certain things happen to us. So it could be a righteous anger. It could be an unrighteous anger. Right? But for God, it's the same thing, that he, he displays anger when he is protecting something that he cares about. And he does so in a holy way. And here, the plan for humanity, his plan for humanity is being undermined. So Jesus walks in and he sees his grand plan for unity with people and to walk with them and to experience intimacy with them. It's being thwarted. It's being blocked. There's a physical barrier keeping them, of greed keeping them. And so he decides to flip it over. This is where Jesus' anger comes from. And Jesus, you know, he comes up and he says, It is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer to all the nations. He actually gets this from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 says this. It's going to be up here on the screen. It says, Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says to the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also to the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and hold fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. God made this promise to the outcasts, to the foreigners, to the outsiders. He made this promise. Jesus walks into the temple and sees that promise being stifled and trifled with. And so he does what he needs to do to make sure that God's promise is upheld. It has always been God's desire to bring all the nations to himself. And it has always been his desire to create avenues for people to speak with him, to worship him, to be with him, and to walk with him. This is God's heart. This is God's heart. Before the veil was torn, the temple was where people would be. It's where they would come to experience the presence of God. In our own Christian worldview, because we have the Holy Spirit now and God walks with us everywhere, it's, it's kind of hard for us to have that conceptualization is that God was in this place. He decided to dwell here. And it was God's desires that all, desire that all the nations would be blessed. What we see Jesus doing here is violently driving out what is separating people from experiencing intimacy with him. He is taking violent measures. He's angry Jesus right now. But it comes from a loving Jesus. From a passionate Jesus. It is a picture, ultimately, 
of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. The cross was the most violent upheaval of sin this world has ever known, wasn't it? It wasn't just tables being flipped over. He was crucified and took upon the, the entirety of humanity's sins upon his shoulders and was cut off from God in that moment, looked like our disgusting sin. It was this violent crucifixion of all that has separated us from God. Jesus takes violent measures to be with you. And just as Jesus violently flipped the tables that were separating people from experiencing unity with God, he violently crucifies the very sins keeping you from him. These Gentiles were hopeless to come before God. They had no birthright to come and enter into this temple and say, hey, I I demand to be here. This is my right. Gentiles didn't have that. So Jesus made a way. And that's what he does. Jesus makes a way. He does that with us as well. Because we, in our sinful state, are no different from those Gentiles trying to enter into the temple. Those poor and those lame and those crippled that are unable to enter into the temple gates or afford sacrifices, we are unable to buy atonement for ourselves. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard I might strive to be worthy of some sort of blessing or some sort of unity with God, I will always fall short. That creates me in this space where I need someone to make a way. Jesus does this with us. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Well, here's the good news. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been been brought near by the blood of Christ. The entire narrative of Scripture is that we have so many barriers keeping us from a life of peace with God. And that God will stop at nothing to see all of those barriers and to see that they are flipped over and done away with. God will stop at nothing to have you. And I think sometimes when we sin or when we've created these bad habits in our lives or where we feel like our hearts are just blocked off from feeling and we feel just somehow, just as as Paul describes here in Ephesians, alienated or cut off from the commonwealth, like we are unable to really access unity with God, unity with his people, uh, this, this experience of worshiping him and living a life with him. I think sometimes when we're going through these struggles, at least sometimes I will picture God as this, this figure just with, like, oh, okay, I'll save you, but don't do that again. I'm not mad, I'm disappointed, right? That crossing of the arms and saying, do you know what? I guess I have to clean up your mess again. Some of you grew up with that. 
your parents treated you that way, you had a teacher that treated you that way, a figure in your life treated you that way, and now you've taken that character and stamped it onto God. Like he's this some disappointed, disapproving father that, yeah, I'll save you, I guess, because that's my character. Like a... Romans 8, 38 says this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God will go do great measures to get you because he wants you. He wants you. Jesus removed all barriers between us and God on the cross. He flipped our tables over. And all of this greed or all of this pride or all of these insecurities that we've set up as barriers between us and God or that maybe other people have set up in your life for you. Jesus has violently attacked that because he desires you. And it says afterwards this, and this is so beautiful in the passage. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This temple was a place for reconciling, atoning, and the healing work of God to have its full effect. And these people, now that these barriers were removed, felt the freedom to enter into this community with God and be ministered to. And I feel like this, this, there is this type of freedom that we ought to experience when we're facing God. He's a holy God that demands our respect and we, we ought to fear him in a way that we fear a lion, but this lion is for us and fighting for us. In Hebrews 4.16, he said, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our help in time of need. I think having that confidence that God wants to hear from us, that he wants our he, he wants to hear from us in prayer. He wants to be with us. He wants to speak with us. He wants to change us. That confidence that he actually desires that relationship with us ought to change the way we look at prayer, right? That we have a God bending his ear to us, listening to us, wanting to hear our voices. He wants you. He desires you. And this isn't in a creepy, frantic sort of desire that we tend to have sometimes. This is a holy desire, saying, I have created you, and I know exactly who you are, and I love it. I love it, and I want to see you become more of who you are in me. This grand table-flipping work of Christ and what he did allowed for prayer and unity and speaking with him and worship to have its full, unhindered effect on our lives. And that is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you. He says, seek and you will find. He says, knock on the door and it will be opened to you. It's like Jesus has invited you into his house. He says, everything I have is yours. We talked about it. We just, we just talked about adoption. We have been adopted into the family of God. That means when Jesus sealed your heart with the Holy Spirit, he said, everything I have, it's yours. 
Have confidence. Come to me. Ask me of things. I've created this way. I've adopted you, my son. I've adopted you, my daughter. Do not act like a guest in my house. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. There's no actual impact or change in our lives that we can see as Christians without stepping into unity with God in prayer. And I'll, I don't know about you, but I, I, I oftentimes feel very um, inadequate when I pray because I hear all of these awesome stories of the faithful men of church history where there's divots near their bed where their knees were, where they spent five hours every morning before like, they didn't, they didn't eat lunch. They just prayed, right? And, and I look at those people, I'm just like, I'm so, I'm not that. I don't have the attention span for that. I don't have the bandwidth for that. I don't have the stomach for that. I need to eat something. And, and I get discouraged. I get, I get honestly very discouraged. But then I have to remember, God saved you personally. And he has created avenues for you to speak with him. And he wants to hear from you. And you do not have to be, you don't have to go from zero to 150 miles per hour. He wants you right where you're at. He saved you right where you're at. And he will walk with you. He will walk with you faithfully. This is to be a house where we seek him. Seek him corporately and personally in prayer. This is how God desires his house to be used, right? He's made ways for us to access him. And may it never be a house of merely preaching and learning, but a place where we can take advantage of the unity provided us through the shedding of Christ's blood. The Christ has made a way, and we are to walk in it. Ask, knock, Jesus says. And there's almost this urging in Jesus' words. Do you feel that? There's almost this earnesty, like, just ask me. I got a Christmas present for my wife uh, a few days ago. Um, just because I was at REI and I saw something, and I'm like, Dude, that's so my wife. I'm going to, like, you know, I'm going to buy it, and I'm going to wait till Christmas to give it to her. And I gave it to her, like, a couple days ago. <laughs> I just couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. I, I, I was so excited because I, like, I finally feel like I, as a husband said, my, like, I bought clothes for my wife. And I'm, like, not at that level, you know. And, and I just couldn't wait. And I feel like that's the heart of God. He's like, I want to give things to you. I want to bless you. Ask. So I made her ask. I'm like, do you want it? Do you want, do you want, do you want, your, do you want your gift? You just have to, like, just say it. I'll, I'll give it to you, right? This is earnestly. God wants you to pray with him. You know, before Jesus went to go be crucified, and when he went out into the Mount of Olives, and he was going to experience intimacy with God before he went uh, to go be crucified, and he took his disciples with him, you know what he asked? Will you pray with me? Before Jesus was about to enter into this gruesome crucifixion, and he was about to be separated from God because he was wearing our sin on his shoulders, he went to his, his friends and he said, will you pray with me, please? 
There's this deep desire for God to have unity with us and for him to create avenues for us to have unity with one another as well through prayer, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. Listen to this. And in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so you know this whole grand master plan we've been talking about? Like this whole narrative of scripture, right? Where God created the Garden of Eden to dwell with people. We kind of screwed it up, right? And so he's like, okay, let's go. He chose Abraham's family and he dwelt with them. Then he created the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and then the temple. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross and when he breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, it is that separation between man and God is now finished. The veil that separated God's presence from us in that temple, torn in half. Now there's intimacy available between us and God. There's unity. We can enter into that presence. And so, when Paul says in Ephesians that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, it means we're the temple now. That's us. We're here. God has chosen you and I to be amongst. And wherever you go, whether you go to work, in your homes, here in church, God is chosen to be here. I think that's cool. I think that's cool that you are his chosen dwelling place. He's decided to hide himself in you. Jesus says, my house shall be called the house of prayer. And who's God's house? We are. And in this house, according to Ephesians 2, we are to seek him. We are to be built up for his glory. And so that other people might enter in, right? So that other people might experience community with God through us. And so now that we believe us to be the the dwelling place of God, we now have to be very introspective with the way we look at the outside world, the way we look at the non-believers. We have to be really careful that we are not making the same mistake that the temple leaders did back then. Amen? We have to be careful. It says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were mad. They were angry. Remember we talked about how anger comes out of this desire to protect something? The temple leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the people that Jesus was continually combating against, they had anger. They were protecting some semblance of control, comfortability, power, influence, money, you name it. They were mad because grace posed a threat to their power and pride. 
Because if people can have access to God, that means they don't have to go through them anymore. They don't have to jump any hoops that they have created for themselves. Their house had become a house of power and greed. And we have to be introspective church. I have to have I, as my house, become something other than a house of prayer. We have communion here, and, and, we, and we do it every Sunday morning because that's, that's a command given to us by God, right? And it's the symbol of this, of this body that was broken and this blood that was shed on our behalf, right? It is to remind us every week that before we could enter into pre- the presence of God, before we can live a life with him, Christ had to break himself. His blood had to be shed. That perfect sacrifice had to be made. It reminds us that the work that Jesus did was final. And that he was sufficient for that sacrifice. And so one thing I think we need to be very careful of is realizing the sufficiency of God and allowing people to come to himself And for us not to create any tables that people need to pass in order to get to him. They don't need to stop living with their girlfriend before they can come to Jesus. They don't need to stop drinking before they can come to Jesus. They don't need to stop doing this, stop doing this. They need to come to Jesus and we need to allow Jesus and the gospel to have his full effect on them. So we cannot, amen. And so we cannot be creating these tables for people before that they can enter in to God's presence because God hasn't done that with us, right? Jesus has flipped these over. They need to stay flipped. He's made a way. He's made a way. And I'll just, I'll just close with this. And I'll, I'll invite the worship team to come back up and, and we'll go into a second set. And I want you to leave with two thoughts. One, are there any tables that God has put down and that he has flipped over that we for some reason just keep flipping back up, right? Are there things that God has done away with? that he has flipped over and he said, I have made a way and I have crucified that, that we for some reason keep bubbling it back up because it's our safety blanket, it's our security. That's our first thought. And the second thought isn't a question, it's just an identity statement. That God values you. He values you. He sees you. And he sees you of so much worth He sees relationship with you of such value that he will die for you. That he has died for you. And he has done away with all of these separators, all these barriers that you feel have kept him from relationship with you. He's done away with it. He wants you where you're at. So we're going to pray. And let's just receive that this morning. Let's receive that identity statement that he's made on us. And that I love you, I value you, I'll do anything to get you. I'll do anything to get you. You are of so much value that I'll do anything to get you into my family. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, we want that to wash over us this morning. We, we want to 
we just help us? I think there's, there's that simple prayer that Peter, when he was sinking, there wasn't this long, drawn-out re- resuscitation of Scripture. When he was drowning, he just said, Jesus, help me. And you responded. For those of us who don't feel articulate enough to, this morning to express just how separated from you we feel, that we cry out that simple prayer this morning. Jesus, help me. We know that you're faithful to respond, Lord. And we believe, but help us in our unbelief. May we meet you here this morning. You know what, Lord? Not that we'll meet you here. Meet us here, Lord. Because the gospel is not that we have climbed up a mountain to get to you and that we've jumped any hurdles to get to you, or we've overcome any demons to get to you, but that you have done all those things for us. May that have its full effect this morning as we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.